Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. What a great song. I hope we'll sing that one again. Our heart needs a surgeon. Our soul needs a friend. Today we're looking at rest for our souls. Anybody in this place need a little rest? Any teachers in this place? Any students in this place? First week of school need a little rest? I read this week some interesting facts about why we get so tired. Our hearts beat 103,689 times a day. Our uh, blood travels 168 million miles a day. Think about that for just a moment. We breathe 23,040 times a day. We move 750 muscles a day. We exercise 7 million brain cells a day. Some of us a little more than others in that area. So as we think about that, we're tired. We get a little tired from time to time, a little weary, but today we're talking about rest for our soul, not physical rest as much as spiritual rest. And so we're going to look at that subject today from Matthew 11, 28 through 30. I invite you to turn to it in this black Bible. If you don't have a copy of your own, it's in the back of those chairs. It's on page seven, uh, 809, what we'll be looking at today from the New Living Translation. And so as we look at that, I just had this question to begin with. Is, is life easy or hard for you? Think about that for just a moment, if you would. Uh, students, you know, after this week of, of class, high school students, you know whether this year is going to be a little easy or it's going to be hard. You know in your own life, everyone else, above, all the rest of us, we know that there are certain things in life that are are easy. We recognize how blessed we are, but we also recognize how broken we are and the rest of the world is and how hard it is. And Jesus recognized this as well. In fact, there's a, a paradox that goes on in, in his teaching. In Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate? That doesn't seem to line up with Jesus. Love, that lines up with Jesus. But he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's hard. We're reminded we can't do that on our own. We love those people around us, and we know those people around us are the ones that help us make it through life. Our family and our, our friends and our, our neighbors, they're the ones that encourage us. They're the ones that help us. But we also know that it's, it's not enough, that they're not the primary ones we've got to learn to lean on and depend on because they can't be everything God intended for us to experience in life. He intended for us to lean, depend on, trust, believe in Him. So Jesus comes to this teaching here in Matthew 11. And in that context, in the ancient world, you know life was hard for a good Jewish person. They experienced uh, Roman occupation. In that day, it would have been like in our day, walking around and seeing soldiers with 
I don't know, AK-47s on strapped to their back all the time. They were reminded that these soldiers were always uh, around, and they were, they were mean, and they were demanding, and they were abusive. And life was hard. And, and they were reminded through the collection, unfair collection of taxes that it, it didn't even seem to be worth it to work hard because the government was going to take a lot of it anyway. Sound familiar? As we think about life, not just 2,000 years ago, but now. So Jesus makes this offer. In the midst of his ministry that had, had grown tremendously, now he experiences some, some opposition, some trouble. And he talks about John the Baptist in, in uh, chapter 11, and he, he talks about those unrepentant cities. And you look at the context later, and we're going to talk a little bit about the context. But at the end of chapter 11, he says these words that are so powerful that I want you to take in yourselves. Today, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word, Matthew 11, beginning with verse 28 from the New Living Translation. Then Jesus said to the crowds, to the, the folks who were dealing with the hardness, the difficulty of life, come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is life. Oh, Father, even in the reading of your word, we find peace and comfort. Lord, we want to learn from this. Because we see how distracted and busy, hurried and harried the world is around us. And within us. And we need rest for our souls. We need a confidence in you, a dependence on you that is, is real, Lord. We've heard that we use you as a crutch. Oh, but Lord, we want more than that. <laughs> we don't want to just use you to make it. We want to use you to flourish and thrive and be all that you want us to be in dependence upon you. Not for our own glory, Lord, but for yours. The expansion of your kingdom and the fulfillment of your plans through us. It's in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Be seated. Open that Bible and keep it open if you haven't already. And we'll look at some more of it in just a second. We want to just kind of define, though, what it means, first of all, for rest for our souls. Because we that's a little fuzzy. Not real certain about what that means as we think about, we know what rest is like. We know um, taking some time off. We know rest and relaxation, rejuvenation. And we know we need to be renewed. And all those things are, are involved in rest. But what does it mean for us to experience 
rest in our souls and who needs it and then how do we get it? Those are the questions we're going to answer with the sermon today. And so we start with what is rest for our souls? I think the best way to define it is through a writing of a guy named Dallas Willard who writes about non-discipleship of what it's like not to follow Jesus. He writes the cost of non-discipleship is far greater even than life lived with Christ than the price paid to walk with Jesus. Think about what it cost you if you didn't follow. And he writes these words. And this is how I'm going to define rest for your souls from this cost of non-discipleship. It costs us. And here's what rest for your souls is all about. Abiding peace. A life penetrated throughout by love. Faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what's right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life. Jesus said he came to bring the cross-shaped yoke of Christ is after all an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to your soul. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the, the highest plane. Following Christ is the way we experience rest for our souls. It's the best way to live. So let me ask you another way. Do you need abiding peace? Do you need this life penetrated throughout with love? Do you need to experience the, the idea that everything that happens, God is working together for, for good in His goodness? Do you need all the things that we just spoke about, the power to do what's right and the power to withstand evil? Well, if you do, you've come to the right place because what you need, what I need, is what we're looking at in this text. Rest for our souls. So let's look a little deeper in this context of chapter 11 as to who this was directed toward. And I would say the first step in looking at this is, as we think about this, who needs this? It's those who doubt. Those who doubt. And, and the first section of chapter 11 deals with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends his disciples, those who were following him before they actually followed Christ, and he sends them to Jesus, and he says, are you the one? Ask him. Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's going to deliver us from all that we have experienced, from all of our oppression, and the one that we've been looking for for hundreds of years? Or are you, are you not the one? Now, now think about this for just a moment. This is a progression for John the Baptist. This is chapter 11 of Matthew. At, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 3, John the Baptist was the one who was baptizing Jesus. And he's the one who said, 
I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And in fact, he, he made the statement, I'm not even worthy to un, untie your sandals because there's one coming. He speaks to the crowd. There's one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he recognizes who Jesus is. At one point in the beginning of John's gospel, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's made a progression away from that understanding of who Jesus, his relative, was. Why? Why do doubts creep in? Is it not the circumstances of life? John the Baptist is now in prison. He's in prison because he called out Herod, the leader. Not a great idea to call out the leader, especially for his moral failures in, in that day or in ours. And as we think about what happened because of that, ultimately he's going to be beheaded because of his moral stance against Herod's uh, immoral marriage to Herodias. And so John the Baptist is now in prison and he's thinking, Lord, what's going on here? What's happening? This is not the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be ushered in. Even the forerunner of Jesus didn't understand all the plans of God and what was going on. And so much happens in our world today that we wonder, Lord, when, how, where, why is all of this junk going on? You think about those things for you. I don't need to watch the, the nightly news. In fact, I try not to. I try to keep on a, up on current events. It's hard not to, to, to take a peek every now and then but because it depresses me. In the, the situation that's going on in our world, I find no hope in that. And, and I wonder, Lord, when are you coming back? And I think it's got to be quicker. The whole world is going to know about Jesus pretty soon, and they're going to decide for him or against him. And so it's got to be quicker. So I've got to make sure I'm ready. I've got to make sure you're ready. It's quick. I, but people have been thinking that for years and years, and then that makes me think it's not as quick as I think it might be. But anyway, I've got to be ready, and you've got to be ready too, right? And I wonder, through all of that thought process, I, I begin to know, even though I don't want to, God, do you know what you're doing? And I remember, yes, he does. And I can still trust him. He has never failed me yet. And I don't expect him to now. And so, if you're in that spot where doubts creep in or questions creep in about what's going on around us, then the anxiety and the fear and the uncertainty of the future calls for rest for your soul. And Jesus offers that here. Rest for your soul. There's another group, and it's those who are burdened by religious legalism. In the second section of, of chapter 11, Jesus talks about John the Baptist and himself and the oppression that they are experiencing by the crowds, but probably more so by the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes and all of those uh, Sadducees, all those religious elitist kind of people were giving them all sorts of grief. And, and in the midst of that, Jesus declares that John the Baptist came fasting. And they said, he has a demon. I came feasting. 
eating and, and drinking with those of, of ill repute. And they say, I am a glutton and a drunkard. So this second group of people are really uh, the people pleasers. That's who need rest for their souls. People who are concerned about the way other people view them. Now Jesus is not in that group because he's not, he knows he's above all of that. And he's, he's living his life as we should live our lives as best we can for an audience of one. He's seeking to see, please the Father and fulfill the Father's will. We don't always do that, do we? Sometimes we're more concerned about what other people think. And here's the, here's the clue here. You can't please them. You can't please other people. I grew up in a, a very strict religious environment uh, of do's and don'ts and kind of situation. That's not bad, especially for a child, that kind of discipline. But there comes a time when we've got to experience freedom and an understanding that God has blessed us with so many different things in our lives and we want to experience those things and we don't want to be bound by the impressions or the thoughts of other people. Especially if they don't line up with God's word. We're trying to please Him. When I was in seventh grade, I still remember the first Christian concert I ever went to with our youth group. It was at Amy Grant in the auditorium in Amarillo at the Amarillo Civic Center. If you know where that is. Amy Grant. Anybody ever heard of Amy Grant? Yeah, you're all uh, a little bit older. You know, kind of like me in, in that age. She sang this song, I've Decided. You know that song, I've Decided? I'm going to live like a believer. Turn my back on the deceiver. I'm going to live what I believe I have decided. Being good. Is just a fable. Trying to meet other people's expectations is just a fable. I just can't because I'm not able. I'm going to leave it to the Lord. And one of the verses in that it says, forget the game of being good and your self-righteous pain for the only good that, uh, inside yourself is the good that Jesus brings. Don't, if, if things start to change, don't expect the world to applaud. Just understand, and I'm not quoting it exactly, that you have become the work of God. You can't please people. God is doing something in you if you'll let him. And God will transform you, conform you into the image of his son and that's his desire for you, Romans 8, 29 says. And he uses all sorts of things, works all sorts of things Together for good, Romans 8.28 says that. But just remember, as we think about this whole concept of rest for your soul, that we are a people, and I put myself in this, this category, that don't need to be burdened by even religious legalism. How do you recognize that? Well, it's when somebody else's convictions are placed upon you. You ought to have your own convictions and they ought to come from the Word of God. But when someone else is convicted in a certain way and they want you to do it that way, then that's what the Pharisees were doing and that's where the, those were the people that Jesus was saying they are a brood of vipers, they are whitewashed tombs, they're trying to give the appearance of holiness on the outside, but inside they're rotting and dead, decaying. It's not just the outward appearance that God is concerned about. 
It's the heart. And so as we think about a need for rest for our souls, we don't want to do it in such a legalistic way that we become burdened again because Acts 15.10 tells us this. Remember, that's the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15.10. They're deciding whether or not uh, the early church Christians need to become Jews and need to become circumcised before they become Christians. Now, this is a very important point, especially if you were a male and you weren't circumcised, I would think, for a moment. And remember, if you don't know what circumcision is, Ricky Galvan lives just down the road at Andrews. But uh, Eric can probably help you now as well. And so, children, go to Eric after the service, would you, and ask him about circumcision. So, so when we think about uh, this whole concept of whether they need to be Jews before they became Christians, what, what came out of that was these words. So, so why, here's the argument, why are we challenging God by burdening the Gentiles with a yoke? Here's the same language that is used in what Jesus said, and we'll get to that in just a moment, that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. We couldn't fulfill all the law. We couldn't keep all the ceremonial things we couldn't do it perfectly. That was a burden. That's a yoke upon the people. And then they said, we believe that we are saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. We're all saved the same way. None of us deserve it. God has poured out upon us His grace. He's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's taken our place and taken our sin on the cross. And so now we don't have to be burdened by religious legalism anymore. And what I mean by that is a bunch of do's and don'ts. We walk in a relationship with Jesus. Now, sometimes the do's and the don'ts help us in that relationship, but make sure you're in that relationship so that you can discern which do's and don'ts are helping and which ones are burdening you. I hope that makes sense. Because there's another group here that he's speaking to, and it's those who who really don't care, those who don't repent. And here in verses 20 through 24 in chapter 11, he's talking about these cities that he's done all these miracles in. Remember, he told John's disciples to go back and tell them, uh, tell John the Baptist what, he, what they'd seen. They'd seen the blind that now see. They, they'd seen the lame that now walk. They'd seen the lepers healed. They'd seen, um, oh, there's about six things there. The deaf now hear. I don't know how you see that, but they saw the deaf were, were now hearing. And, and they saw that the, the gospel was preached to the poor and that the dead were being raised. Now, how, where did that happen? It happened in these cities. He's dooming in verses 20 through 24. Chorazin and Bethsaida, Capernaum. Now, what would it be like if you were in their day and you saw Jesus doing all these miracles and you just didn't care? You were apathetic. You were distracted. Busyness and other stuff. We're kind of like living in our day, not seeing where God's working, where God's moving, because He still is. We sing that song, even when I don't feel it, even when I don't see it, even when all that stuff, but, but there are places we can see it. 
and we can treat them. We can understand what God is doing. And as we do, as the followers of Jesus Christ, and even before, we turn away from our own ambitions and desires and sin. And we turn to kingdom things because that's the thing. Those are the things that will last. And we turn our attention off of ourselves. The world doesn't revolve around us. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's about how can we bring Him glory and expand His kingdom. And in the process, we experience the abundant life He came to give us because it's the best way to live. And yet there are so many. And I hope they're not in this place, but I believe they probably are. So many times we get consumed and preoccupied with other stuff. The things that are on our plate at work or the things that are on our plate in the family or our illness or our finances or all the things that, that burden us, that we need rest from, that we need to experience a contentment in. And are those things important? Of course they are. But are those things primary? Are they the ultimate? Of course they're not. They're a means to the ultimate dependence upon the Lord, activity with the Lord, service of the Lord. And so when we think about what he's, who he's speaking to, we see those doubters and we see those people pleasers and we see those unrepentant folks, but then we've got to ask ourselves, so see all that, how can we experience this rest our souls. The answer is we we come to Jesus. We think I've done that. But we keep coming, don't we? Even if you've done that and experienced salvation through what he's done for you because there's no other way. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you can be saved. Even if you've experienced a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you keep coming to Jesus and surrendering to Him and understanding that He's got this plan for you because that's the second aspect of it. You come to Jesus first and foremost. You come to a person who, has, who is the way, the truth, and the life. But you come to Jesus to be yoked with Him. What's that mean? We want rest, and Jesus gives us this idea, this whole concept of, of a work instrument, a work tool, a yoke. What's he talking about? Well, if you were a farmer back in that day, or uh, maybe a couple of decades ago, centuries ago, in this, even this land, you know what a yoke is. We don't know a lot about a, what a yoke is, but we know it from history that a yoke was what harnessed two oxen or two mules together so that they could pull the load and they could share the load. But almost always in that yoke of oxen, there was one ox that was stronger than the other ox. And so the, the weaker ox got the benefit of the strength of the, of the stronger ox. I, I was thinking about this and how I could illustrate this. And so I, I wasn't a great football player, but I did play a little football. So I'm just going to use this illustration. There was a guy when I was in high school who was a tackle right next to me. Now, I was a 165-pound tight end, and we were playing 
uh, you know, at the 4A level, which was the second highest level, I was skinny, little tidy, and I was pretty weak, and I was pretty slow. And so I needed a lot of help, and there was this tackle right next to me who was a sophomore who was like a, he was like an ox. I mean, his name was Roger McCracken. His daughter is actually the head volleyball coach at Herford right now. And, and he had these huge shoulders, and he weighed about 250, and he was fast, and he was strong. And so we ran this play over and over and over again in practice, and I was trying to block the guy I was supposed to block in front of me, and I couldn't do that. And then the, this, my coach was brilliant. He said, hey, I know what we can do. We can have Roger block that guy and have Kyle act like he's helping that guy and double-team that guy. And it was the greatest plan of all time for me because <laughs> instead of getting yelled at in the film sessions on, on Monday morning, they, they, were, they were applauding me. And it was Roger doing all the work. I was just kind of hanging on for dear life. I want to tell you there's somebody, somebody stronger than Roger McCracken that we can depend on. His name is Jesus. And he said, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. You see, there's nothing that you can face that he hasn't already faced. You need to team up with him and depend on him. So how do you do that? You surrender to his way. Now, it's not always going to be easy. It's still going to be hard. But it's always going to be worth it. He's going to see us through. And he can handle it. So I'd invite you to do exactly that because I want to share one last verse with you and I think this is on Jesus' mind as he says come to me this is a verse from Jeremiah 6 16 and this is what it says this is what the Lord says the prophet Jeremiah declares thus saith the Lord listen up people stop at the crossroads and look around and ask for the old godly way Walk in it. Travel its path. And you'll find rest for your soul. The life you've always been looking for. The life you want. The best way to live. But you reply, no. That's not the road we want. Why would people ever reply that to what the Lord says? They do. We do. No, I don't want to do that, Lord. I don't want to go that way. It's too hard. It takes too much energy. It's, it's, I can't. It's not I can't. It's I won't. Because later in this same context, in Jeremiah 6.19, the Lord says, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words and rejected my ways, my law. Now here's what you and I are going to have to decide for ourselves as we are at this crossroad, always. 
Are we going to follow the way we know to follow? The old way. The godly way. Are we going to go our own way? You've done that. I've done that. How does that work out? Usually not very good. Not very well. So today can be the day where you say, Lord, you know all my junk. You know all my burdens. You know my heart. I want to walk in your way. Again? Or I want to walk in your way the first time. Teach me how to do that. Help me learn. As Jesus said, learn from me. Help me learn from you. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know all of how this got communicated today. But I know I need this rest from my own soul and I'm pretty convinced there are other people in this place who are anxious, discouraged, depressed, feel like, like failures from time to time at least. Or there are others who are wondering about the uncertainty of the future who need rest for their souls. Who need to experience the abundant life you came to give us. The abiding peace. The life penetrated by love. A hope that stands firm in the midst of difficult situations. Lord, you know your people. You know the hearts of everybody in this place. And Lord, we, we trust that as we come to you in prayer, as we come to you in surrender, as we come to you in dependence, as we say, Lord, I know I can't do it on my own. I failed. Sin place our faith in you what you've done on the cross and what you do to sustain us empower us to do right and stand against evil and as we choose Lord choose this day who we follow maybe it may it be a choice for you to come to you take up your yoke and to learn from you. Lord, there's so much stuff and you're so much bigger than all that stuff. So help us worship, Lord, and lift you up and the bigger you get in worship, the more those things fade away, pass away. I pray, Lord, that in these moments of invitation that you would call people to yourself, that they would come to be baptized as Hayden was, to follow you, to join this church, whatever you lay on people's hearts, to pray for their oikos or others. Would you lead and would we follow right now?
In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen.